Happy Saturday. It's January 27th, 2024, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in quasi-balmy London. Wow, and I'm Michael Haney in, I don't know, gray, one day sub-zero, one day 35 degrees, New York City. And we are two of your airmail editors that are not only going to talk about the Oscar nominations, we have things to read as well as watch, Michael. We have things to read, watch, we have wonderful guests, and we've got a great show. If you were like many people and you have a strong dislike of lawyers, we've got a story for you this week. Jeffrey Tubin is going to tell us how and why New York City's big law firms, which were once the epitome of stability and discretion, are now, thanks to greed perhaps, acting more like a cross between Wall Street investment houses and George Steinbrenner's New York Yankees. And then, if you're looking for a midwinter break, Ashley, that's different from all the usual locales. Marcia DeSanctis has just the ticket, a long, overlooked place that's rich with history, architecture, and dazzling new developments. And finally, Stuart Heritage will join us from the UK to tell us what happened when David Beckham's Nepo baby daughter-in-law decided to become a movie director. Lots of good treats this week, Ashley. Where would you like to begin? I think we have to start with Nicola Peltz, Michael. I'm sorry. We are who we are. We've got to talk about the latest antics of one of our favorite Nepo babies slash tablet fixtures. Shall we get Stuart Heritage on here? Yeah. Everyone's talking about the Oscar nomination list. We've got a better movie discussion for you this week. Everyone is talking about the Oscar nominations, but that's old news. We've got a more lively debate about a more controversial film, one you probably are never going to see, and that's just fine because Stu Heritage is here to recap it for us. Stu is a writer at large for Airmail based in Kent, my neighbor down here in the UK, and we are thrilled to have him back on the show. Welcome, Stu. Hello. So Stu, most people in the media are talking about the best movies of the year. And this year you are turning your attentions to what I think we can all agree is probably one of the worst, right? Which is the new masterpiece from none other than Nicola Peltz. What exactly is her new film Lola all about? But based on the trailer alone, it seems to be a very kitchen sink drama about a poverty stricken teenage pregnant stripper on drugs. It's every single cliche you can think of about sort of poor American trash. All in one go. No holds barred. So Stu, that's not exactly where she comes from, our director and writer. Tell us a little bit about who she is. She's a jobbing actress, I guess you could say. She's written it, she's directed it. It's her first big project. It sort of helps maybe that her dad's a billionaire who's currently battling for a uh, spot on the board of Disney, Nelson Peltz. That might have something to do with it. You might know her also from being married to David Beckham's son. So she's not exactly struggling taking her thing to Sundance and hoping to get distributor for this. It'd be fair to say she's also a Nepo baby. I was dancing around the term Nepo baby, but yeah, she's the Nepo babyest Nepo baby that's ever Nepo babied. A lot of the reaction that the film's trailer has got has just been people questioning perhaps validly, whether or not she's ever had any experience of anything other than being brought up in a giant mansion and having everything she's ever wanted. They are really alone. She's been criticized for sort of glamorizing this particular lifestyle, right? When in fact, her own lifestyle is a more traditional interpretation of glamorous. I mean, she spent the past year suing her wedding planners. Her dad is attempting a hostile takeover of Disney. Tell us a little bit about the day-to-day life of Nicola Peltz and of course, her equally well-known husband, Brooklyn Beckham. She seems very busy. There's lots of Instagramming going on, if nothing else. The lawsuit against um, her wedding planners is sort of hilarious because I think it was the second or possibly third group of wedding planners that she had employed. And there was some problem with the RSVPs. And in the sort of the turmoil that it created, all these secrets came out. So Nelson Peltz, her father, who I guess bankrolled the wedding, threatened to call the whole thing off. He called it a shit show. His wife, 
was desperately trying to hide how much it cost from him. This all came out in the court papers. It was hilarious. But now she's got time to concentrate on her art, I guess, now that's all finished. For those of our listeners who are fans of the cinema, where might we have seen her work before? In front of the camera, perhaps? Mainly in front of the camera, yeah. She was, I don't know if you're familiar with the fourth Transformers film, I think. I can't say that I am a student of that oeuvre, Stuart. Oh, that's a shame because she's in that briefly. And she was in a mini series about the Chippendales that came out last year. It doesn't seem like she's desperate for work. She either picks her projects very, very carefully, or I don't want to say she, whatever her father pressures the directors into giving her, maybe that's what she gets. I've got to say this about Lola as well. It's got some really... Quincy Jones did the music for it. So, I mean, it must be good. That's the only logical explanation, right? It has to be a very high quality film. Wait, but Stu, I mean, there's a bit of a personal connection there with Quincy Jones, Nespa. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's basically her father-in-law at this point, I think. So, yeah, but I'm sure it's a very good film. I'm sure that that has nothing to do with it. And they've managed to get Quincy Jones to fund this weird little movie. Just for everyone keeping score at home, to say Quincy Jones' relation, because you've got Quincy Jones as a father-in-law, you've got Brooklyn Beckham over here and Nelson Peltz. So just to clarify, as you note in your reporting, Quincy Jones, her brother is dating Quincy Jones's daughter, right? That's right, yes. Maybe he picked up the phone call. He had a reason to, right? Maybe, or maybe he got to hear about the film very early and realised it sounds like the most amazing film ever made that's being released in the period of the year where no one releases any good films ever, traditionally. Michael Jackson's not here for me to produce anything right now, so I may as well go over here to this. Everyone's plan B after Michael Jackson is Brooklyn Beckham's wife. Am I the only one here that feels a little bit gross for even giving this movie so much airtime? I mean, we could be talking about American fiction right now, guys, and instead here we are talking about Lola. What is wrong with us? Oh, American fiction, that was all over the Oscar nominations. Everyone knows about American fiction now. No one, I think even after it's been released, not many people are going to know about Lola, so we're really doing it. It needs all the oxygen it can get. It's good for this poor young actress's career. The filming on this wrapped in 2021. It took a while for it to find a distributor, etc. But finally we got there. Do we have a sense of when it's going to be streamed and where it's going to be streamed? Yes, it's coming on the 9th of February in your homes, possibly in like a very, very small number of theatres. But I think mainly it's a digital release. Which is great, because you like going outside to watch this sort of thing. You mean who likes being seen lined up to see it? <laughs> yeah, it's the same impulse that made people read Fifty Shades of Grey on their Kindles rather than hold the paperback. <laughs> Stu, thank you so much for watching this so we don't have to, and for writing about it with such humor. Look, watching Lola might not be the best way that you're going to spend two hours this year, but reading Stu's article about it is definitely a good use of four minutes. Yes, I like that. Or read it over and over again for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Probably higher quality entertainment. Thank you, Stu. <laughs> Thank you, Stu. Thank you so much. Michael, I can't help myself. Like, this could be one of those terribly awful cult movies that we just watch because we have to. If we continue to give Lola more airtime, I'm afraid that it might become something like Gigli, like one of those cult movies that's terrible and yet lots of people have seen and even committed to memory. So we should consider ourselves warned. We need to stop this conversation now. Stop this conversation. And no better way to stop that conversation than bring in a new guest, perhaps, I don't know, Jeffrey Tubin. Absolutely, Jeffrey Tubin. Like, if you lost a few brain cells on the Nicola Peltz conversation, you're going to get them back here. Michael, today we have a very interesting conversation on our hands about law firms. But because Jeffrey Tubin is the one who wrote this great story, it's not just about law firms. It's also about the way we live, the evolution of New York. So Jeffrey Tubin is a lawyer, although non-practicing, he's still a member of the bar. He's also a legal analyst and a journalist and the author of many books, including Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Welcome, Jeffrey. 
Hi, Ashley and Michael. So, Jeffrey, your story this week takes us into the heart of law firm culture in New York, which has changed tremendously since you were a young associate several decades ago. Where do we find ourselves now in this strange ecosystem? What's changed? Well, I was just a summer associate. I was never an actual associate for a full-time associate at any law firm. But I was one at Paul Weiss, Rivkin, Wharton, and Garrison, which is the subject of my story in airmail. And one of the reasons I decided to work at that firm for the summer, and I think a lot of people went to work there, is that the firm had a reputation as being liberal and civic minded. And law firms had in those days, which was back in the mid 80s, reputations beyond just being a law firm. They were known for certain political views. They were known for certain social profiles. You had WASP firms, you had Jewish firms, you had Catholic firms even. And that culture of segmentation among law firms has really changed. And in my piece for Airmail, I use Paul Weiss as an example, but I think it illustrates larger themes of changing mores and culture in New York and perhaps the whole country. So, Jeffrey, what changed it? Because it seems as people who live in New York, I have my theories, but you identify certainly the first order of magnitude is perhaps money. I would say the first, second and third factors are money. But in an interesting way, it's how money came to the forefront. When it comes to law firms, one of the things that I found interesting in my story is a real turning point was the decision in 1985 of Stephen Brill, who was the founder and editor of The American Lawyer, to start publishing the financial results of all the major law firms, how much money they took in every year, how much money the partners. And that transparency led to a level of competition that hadn't existed before. Before then, lawyering was still a gentleman's club. And I say gentleman advisedly because it was mostly male. And it was considered somewhat vulgar to talk about money. But in the go-go 80s, the Reagan years, that's when it became socially acceptable to compete on the basis of money. And that's what really started to change law firms in New York, which was the open pursuit of profit, which had been, I mean, I don't want to pretend that these lawyers didn't care about money. That's not true at all. But they didn't talk about it as openly until Grill started posting the numbers. So, Jeffrey, how much are we talking about? How much money are these lawyers making these days? This to me was really shocking. I had no idea how much they were making. I figured a few million dollars a year was a lot of money, but the numbers are way more stratospheric than that. There's a lawyer at Paul Weiss, I'm told, who makes $25 million a year. Other lawyers there make $20 million a year. As one lawyer said to me, we now make more money than our clients. In the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of traffic away from law firms that ambitious young graduates of fancy law schools would go to Wall Street. They'd go to Goldman Sachs. They'd go to Morgan Stanley. But what's starting to happen now is senior people at these financial firms are going to law firms. And I have examples of that in my piece that the top of the law firm pyramid has gotten so lucrative that it's actually better than being on Wall Street, which was news to me. I found that fascinating. I think one thing, an analogy you make in your story, which I think really frames it, if you're a sports fan, is the law firms up until the 80s, it was a place of discretion where you're kind of buckled in for life. You became a partner. And you were set. Each one had their identity. It was very stable. And then all this 
sort of money, as you note, in the 80s sort of starts to become more transparent or visible what people are making, which upends it. What crystallizes for me is you're like, this becomes like the Yankees under Steinbrenner, which is you're just trading talent in and out. And there was really the end of loyalty to these firms, right? And they sort of became independent players at that point, right? That's exactly right. And it also replicates the American economy as a whole, even within law firms. There is now a very established star system. It used to be that to be a law firm partner meant that basically everybody at the law firm, all the partners at the law firm made the same amount of money and they would go in what was called lockstep together. But one of the results of the competition among law firms is that the top lawyer started making a great deal more money than even the other partners at the law firms, that there is a star system at these firms where the top people are making 20, 25 million a year and the other partners are making a great deal less, a million or two dollars a year. As I say in the piece, there is no place on planet Earth where anyone feels sorry for law firm partners making only a million or two dollars a year. But it is very different from making 20 million. And you have this division inside law firms of people who are making vastly more money than others, which is understandable because they bring in more money than others. They have the clients, but it also leads to the kind of segmentation and wealth stratification that you see in the broader economy as a whole. How is this culture transforming it that you see it in New York City now? One of the things that I found interesting in reporting the piece is it is a kind of meritocracy. And this is better than it used to be in certain ways. Again, when I got out of law school in 1986, you still had WASP law firms. You still had Jewish law firms. Cravath, Swain and Moore, Davis, Polk and Wardwell were known as WASP firms. Proskauer and Rosenman were known as Jewish firms. Paul Weiss sort of prided itself on a mix of religions from going back very far, although it was predominantly Jewish. Now what you have is a money culture that has really eliminated those things. The religious differences among law firms have receded almost to invisibility. And that's, I think, fundamentally a good thing. Law firms are not and nor should they be country clubs. But what's substituted is a completely mercenary culture, one that you either produce money for the firm or you're out. That is, I think, reflective of the broader culture that this idea of being a law firm partner as like having tenure at a university, a permanent job, that's gone. I guess I don't mourn that loss. I mean, why should lawyers have that kind of stability that no one else does? But it is also indicative of how our society has just become more financially oriented than it used to be. And the only colors that matter anymore are not black or white, but just green. Jeffrey, how are young people feeling about joining this profession? I mean, there was a time not too long ago when New York was suffering from a glut of aspiring lawyers. Where are we at now? Well, I think young lawyers are pretty realistic about what's coming their way. They understand that it's a competitive culture and it's one where it's hard to get to the very top. And that brass ring is still out there. But I think they're also realistic about how few spots are available and also about the cultures of the places that they're going. So my current interaction, my knowledge of white shoe law firms lately, my only knowledge comes from succession. And that's my impression. Is that kind of depiction accurate? Because you also get to this idea that clients are 
no longer loyal to firms anymore. But I was wondering, on that level, is that accurate? That's a very important point, and I address that in my airmail story. Just as clearly as lawyers are no longer loyal to law firms, that they are free agents, they go to where they could make their best deal. Clients are much less loyal than they used to be and have higher expectations. Again, in the old days, it was known that Chase Bank sent its work to Milbank Tweet. Citibank sent its work to Sherman and Sterling. IBM sent its work to Cravath, Swain and Moore. Those companies now spread their legal work around. So law firms can no longer count on one big client to pay all the bills. And that means that they are even more desperate in their competition for clients. And that's feeding this churn, this uncertainty, this competition among law firms that's pushing things in the same direction. It can lead some law firms to make bad judgments, to do too much for clients, to violate their duties as lawyers because they're so desperate to keep clients. I don't think that goes on very much at the top firms, but the level of competition is brutal and it's something that these lawyers think about all the time. That's why I love your analogy, whether it's Yankees under Steinbrenner or any pro team now, it just is like the star players move around every season. They go where they're going to get the best offer and you build the team from there. And the idea of loyalty, which is, you know, I mean, that's what I think is also great about your insights is this every man for himself, the individual is greater than the team or the community. It's now come for one of the most institutional of institutions. hundred percent. I mean, that's what's fun about writing a piece like this for airmail. Law firms, I don't think people find inherently fascinating, but when they are symbols of how the culture is evolving, I think it's worth pointing out. And that's what I tried to do. Okay, Jeffrey, we know that you're a lawyer. You're non-practicing at the moment, though. But after doing your reporting on this piece, were you tempted at all to get back in the game when you heard about those $25 million salaries? Be honest. No, I got to say, I am realistic enough to know that no one gets hired right out of a journalism job to be a $25 million a year lawyer. So it's not like I could do that if I want it. But it is interesting to think that people I went to law school with are making that kind of money. And that's something I don't think I was prepared for. I thought of some of the people I went to law school, they went into Wall Street. I know one guy became a partner at Goldman Sachs and I sort of expected he was multi, multi multi-millionaire. What I didn't expect is that some of my law firm partner friends are making that kind of money and God bless him, but I've sort of made my peace with being a lowly journalist. Jeffrey, you are one of the best there is, so there's no FOMO to be had. Thank you so much for this great story and for your thoughtful comments on it. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Jeffrey. Bye, Jeffrey. Michael, you got to love Jeffrey too, but... Yeah, nothing makes me happier than law firms and lawyers fighting with each other and turning against each other maybe a little bit. So what's the old phrase? First, we kill all the lawyers. Maybe first we let the lawyers sort of go to war against themselves. Second best thing. Okay, Mike. Well, on that note, now we need to get very, very, very far away from all of this. We need complete and utter and total escapism. And Marsha DeSantis is here to provide it. Marsha is a wonderful writer. She does a lot of travel stories for us. And what I like about her stories is that when they come in, they make me want to go somewhere. I thought I had absolutely no interest in ever visiting. And in this case, it is Uzbekistan. Yes, that's right. And Marsha is a bit of an expert on the region, and she is here to tell us why this could be the hot travel of the moment. Marsha is a contributing writer for Airmail as well as for Travel and Leisure, and she's done many stories and essays for Vogue, Departures, BBC Travel. Her new book is a marvelous collection of travel essays called A Hard Place to Leave, Stories from a Restless Life. Welcome, Marsha. Thank you, Ashley, and thank you, Michael. 
Good to be back. We're so happy to have you. When your story came in about Uzbekistan, I have to say, I was like, this is not somewhere I was ever especially interested in visiting. And yet now I'm pretty much ready to book my flight. Graydon said the same thing when he read the piece. We were talking about it in a meeting yesterday. You know this region intimately well. Take us back to your history with it and tell us why now was the right moment to go back. Sure. Well, when I graduated from college, I graduated a long time ago, beginning of the 80s. I was a Russian and Russian studies major, Soviet studies actually at the time. One of my first jobs was taking kind of continuing education junkets over to the former Soviet Union. So we would go from New York to Moscow and then we'd do three kind of in-between places. And it was very often Central Asia. We would fly to Tashkent or take train to Tashkent and go to Bukhara and Samarkand and end up in what was then Leningrad, but of course now is St. Petersburg. So I went there in a very weird time. It was the end of the Brezhnev era, was the height of the cold war. When I was going there, there were three different Russian premiers. Brezhnev died, Andropov then came Chernyenko. And I thought it was so fascinating to be in Central Asia, a place that was 2,000 miles from Moscow, and just to have this very ethnic-looking mix very ethnic feeling mix, different language. I mean, occasionally you heard Uzbek. Obviously, Russian was the primary language of the Soviet Union. But there were markets with fresh fruit, apricots and melons and lamb on spits and things like that. And just kind of sunshine and desert air and flowers and a sense of kind of openness and freedom that you didn't necessarily have in Moscow. So I wanted to go back. I've actually been planning a trip back there since before the pandemic. The country, Uzbekistan, has undergone a lot of changes, became independent, obviously, when the Soviet Union broke up in 1991, then had about 25 years of authoritarian rule. And in 2016, a new guy was voted in, kind of ushered in a lot of liberal reforms, wanted to be seen as a player on the world stage and someone that a place like United States could do business in every way, cultural, economic, things like that. So I really was interested in going back, especially because it has become very easy to navigate around there. There's flights, there's Spanish built trains. It's just not like it used to be. You took us through hundreds of years of history in your reporting. And I think what I took away from your story is that if you're curious about this particular region and the way that it impacted and engaged with the rest of the world, Uzbekistan kind of has it all. Tell us a little bit about what tourists can expect to experience there. Yeah, it does really have it all. I mean, I think the kind of the jewels in the crown of Uzbekistan are the historical monuments that have been those that were not destroyed by time or the Bolsheviks and some of the most extraordinary looking buildings you've ever seen. And also for the Islamic world, so much of that culture has been destroyed in Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq and that whole part of the world. The cultural heritage in Uzbekistan is just turquoise and blue tiles that are just gleaming in the sun, just these most astonishing sites. I mean, you really understand why people stood there, people who were adventurers, colonizers, people who were explorers, just stood there kind of in awe. It is very interesting because the Soviets were not, I mean, they destroyed a ton of stuff, but those that they preserved, Soviets were not interested in religion, obviously. As a matter of fact, they forbade it, but the buildings were very interesting for architects, ethnographers, restorers, archaeologists, 
and scientists. It was really a place where the Soviets really perfected their art of preservation. So in a way, it's thanks to them that a lot of those monuments really didn't go to complete ruin. Marsha, one of the things that struck me, as you note in your story, is this is a country, really a region, that has been at the true crossroads of history and empires for thousands of years. As you mentioned, it was a part of this original Silk Road. The Greeks, the Mongols, the Arabs, the Persians, the Tsarist Russians all came through here. And you've got this wonderful quote from one of your guides saying, you have the atmosphere of a fairy tale, but in the 21st century. I mean, and those layers of history, I think, as you noted, what you see there seems so, such a wonderful, you don't find that in many places anymore. No, and you really get a feeling, a very powerful sweep of history, walking through places like this, it's also very safe. And so I sometimes don't sleep very well when I'm in just far away or just the jet lag is a little off. And I just walking around these places at night, it's very powerful. And sure, you can really feel centuries, millennia of power and conquest and and life there. So, I mean, I do feel like maybe it's a little bit back to Ashley's and sort of your question, Michael, but what do I see in these places that no one really thinks of going, or maybe not a lot of people, not no one, but I do think that there is something really to be celebrated in kind of the undersung and the under and the under-recognized. And this place is a little bit of a no-brainer. Like it really has everything. As Ashley said, it has history and these monuments that you won't see living museums, living monuments, kind of this mythical quality. I just think you'd be hard pressed to see anywhere else in the world. And it has beautiful boutique hotels. It has amazing shopping. Uzbekistan is the fifth largest producer in the world of gold. And some of the gold boutiques in Tashkent have beautiful things for not very expensive. And sort of like in the Great Silk Road, you can still buy silks and lamb fur and leather and cloth and gold. And it's all kind of still there, only in kind of very modern surroundings. Marcia, let's talk about the cost of traveling through Uzbekistan, because it's something you and I talk about a lot as not only people who cover travel, but as people who love to travel is the exorbitant cost of hotels these days, especially in Europe and train and airfare. It's just gotten so prohibitive. Do you find Uzbekistan to be a good value for people looking for a transformative experience? Oh, I think it's a great value. I think it's probably an incomparable value, actually, because I stayed in, I think, probably the nicest boutique hotel in Samarkand. But I think it ran something like $100 a night. And it's very unique and very beautiful. And you can eat out on pennies. You can really eat an incredible dinner and have, there's a big wine scene now in Uzbekistan. I think there always was, but it was Soviet red wine. But now there's young producers and a whole like vineyard tour that you can do, wine tasting around. And so there's very good wine there. And culturally, just, I would say, very, very high value for the money. I think the other thing that I was excited to see in your story is the ease of getting there now. As you note, there is the national airline has a fleet of brand new planes flying direct from New York City. So it's not like it makes it difficult to get there. You've got a direct flight these days on brand new planes. It's not like you're flying some rickety old Aeroflot or something. For sure. I mean, as a matter of fact, I regretted not taking Uzbekistan Airways. I think it's Airways. I took Turkish Airlines through Istanbul and just making that one stop and having the four-hour layover. So it really makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think one thing 
that a lot of times in these countries that are developing very, very fast. I think they have a little catching up to do as far as capacity. They have these beautiful Spanish-made high-speed trains that go between Kiva, Bukhara, Samarkand, and Tashkent. And they're gorgeous trains, but there aren't that many of them. And so changing my train reservation was complicated. A lot of countries in the world, you, you just say, okay, I need to take the earlier train. But I just went and kind of was on standby and wait list. And I did end up getting on, but I was told by the company that organized my tour, which is called Mir, and I'd like to mention them because they really are pioneers and just did a fantastic job with the guides that are historians and philosophers and experts and things like that. They told me that these trains can get very booked up very quickly. So that's maybe just that slight lack of flexibility, but there seemed to be tons of availability in the hotels. I saw a lot of Western tours, but I don't think I ran into another American, except for somebody who is in the travel industry and was designing tour to Central Asia. And she said that demand is up because it is transformative. It is different. And I can genuinely say you won't see with these majestic buildings and carved columns and just open spaces just full of history. I can genuinely say you won't find it anywhere else in the world. It sounds fantastic. It sounds truly so almost like out of a fairy tale. She's all also apropos because you know your story as well. This was the place where 1001 Nights was set and unfurled. And so it seems only right that it's going to be a place that's so transportive. Marcia, thank you so much. This was such a great story. It was so fun as always to get to work with you on it and talk to you now. Have fun in Paris. See you soon. Can't Thanks wait so for much. Next. Thanks for having me on, guys. By the way, I went to Rome last weekend, your favorite city, one of them. It's exquisite. January is the time to visit Rome. No tourists. It's the best time. Hotel rooms less expensive. Zero people. Pretty much zero people, honestly. I know. I do have a really good new restaurant for you, too. Have you been to Rocco? Yes, I love Rocco. I love Rocco. And of course, you know who was there is my favorite Roman celebrity, Alessandro Michele, former creative director of Gucci, <laughs> guy with the long hair, looks like Jesus, but in fact, it's just a fashion god. It was very exciting. If Jesus wore fur-lined sandals, that would be it. I love him so much. Okay, Michael, it's the weekend. I know you've got something fascinating to recommend for us. I do. And I just want to be clear, I've only seen the first episode of this big new limited series on Apple TV. So I'm only going off of that and I intend to follow up with you all next week once I see how I feel, having seen a little more. But it is a show I had to check out. It is Masters of the Air. And why I had to check it out, Ashley, is it's from Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. And it is the third piece in what is kind of their World War II trilogy that began with Band of Brothers, then went to the Pacific. And now they're telling the story of the war from the point of view of the American pilots, specifically the legendary, quote, bloody 100th, unquote, a bombing squad that flew those giant B-17s and was part of the 8th Air Force. It was based in England and suffered these staggering losses against the Nazis in less than six months in 1943. 34 out of 36 of the planes, each carrying a crew of 10 men, were shot down. It's got an insane cast, starting with Austin Butler and Barry Keegan, and a budget that's reported to be around $200 million, which is made for some insane CGI flying scenes. But what's kind of cool is it also has this soul that feels very retro in a good way. Comes somewhere between a 1940s movie and, I don't know, something you'd see in Great Peak TV back in the day. As I said, I've only seen one episode, 
I'm going to be back here next week to tell you more. It's called Masters of the Air on Apple TV. And you, my dear, what do you have for us? I just went to go see Tom Stoppard's play Rock and Roll, which is having a revival here in London at the Hampstead Theater. It premiered in 2006. Have you seen this play, Michael? I think it came through New York. I never saw it. So I didn't even know why the revival and what's different this time. It's an incredible play. It's about, among other things, the emerging movement in Czechoslovakia between 1968 and the Velvet Revolution of 1989. But it takes place both in Cambridge, England, and in Prague. And it focuses on like a young Czech PhD student who is a massive fan of rock music and how he sort of processes and contends with the regime at home. And then you also have this contrasting character who's a British Marxist professor who still manages to cling to these ideals of communism. So anyway, it's fascinating and it takes place over the course of a few decades. Seeing this play got me kind of, I went down into a bit of a stoppered rabbit hole and I started reading Hermione Lee's biography of him, which is really wonderful. But isn't it like 800 pages? It's really long. I'm listening to the audiobook version, but it kind of works because I do a lot of driving. Ah, Good to know. Good to know. When I'm not calling you, just to chat, I'm listening to Tom Stoppard's life. It's wonderful. Anyway, so highly recommend if you can't get to London to see this great revival of rock and roll at the Hampstead Theatre, really recommend Hermione Lee's biography because it takes us through so many interesting moments of European history and Soviet history and Czech history. And all right, well, love spending time with you, Michael, as always. Thank you so much to our listeners for joining us. Michael, my dear, will you please read us out? With pleasure. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Nelson Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputies are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitelli, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Collette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and join all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. But you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe and Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.